We have a number of people out of town for the Memorial Day weekend, and we probably have some people here visiting from the Memorial Day weekend with family or with friends. We're pleased to have you. We are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be in a uh, intense section this morning dealing with Satan and demonology. Um, we have worked our way starting from chapter 1, verse 1. We have looked at the genealogy. We've looked at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the announcement. This is Jesus who will save his people from their sins. We have looked at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and he began this way. Here's what he proclaimed. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith or trust are hand in glove. Repentance means you turn from sin. Faith means this is whom you trust. And you cannot have true saving faith without repentance. And you can't have true repentance without faith. This is not just cleaning up your life. This is turning from sin because God has done a work of grace in your heart. Then we looked at the Beatitudes. These are the characteristics. Blessed is this kind of person. Namely, these are the characteristics of the people who are truly in the kingdom of heaven, who have repented of their sin, believed in Jesus. And if those characteristics are not true in your life, then when we go to the end of the sermon, you will hear this one day. You will call him Lord, Lord, and he will say, Depart from me, I have never known you, you who practice anomia, lawlessness. So, there's a turning from the sin and there is trust in him. So, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, are his words. Now we turn to his works the works of Jesus, and Matthew, perhaps for reasons of uh, being able to remember them, he gives them in sets of triplets. And we saw that right at the beginning of chapter 8. Um, uh, there was the healing of the leper, there was the healing of the centurion's son, why, or not his son, but his slave, his young slave, and why that was so striking it was done, he didn't come. He was on his way, and then he just healed him from a distance. And then we looked at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and then there's a summary statement all that evening. I take it that was Shabbat, the Sabbath, the sun went down. Now they're bringing to him all kinds of people, demon-possessed, sickness, and he healed them all who came to him. And then intermingled between these triplets are counting the cost of discipleship. It's as if saying this, don't be naive. Following me is not a piece of cake. People are going to persecute you. It goes right back to the Sermon on the Mount. So um, then we come again to another triplet of miracles. We looked at the one last week on Jesus calms the storm on the sea, went out there at night with his disciples, 
one of those great winds came howling down off of the Golan Heights, stirred it up, and they started to sink. And here's Jesus asleep in the back of the boat, probably on a cushion, a, a, that a sailor, leather cushion that a sailor would use uh, for rowing. And uh, the boat's filled, being filled with water, and he's still asleep. Expression of his humanity, his tiredness. And they woke him up. And they said, Master, don't you care about us? We're perishing. Oh, you of little faith. He got up, commanded the winds and the storm, and there was an immediate calm. Now, I take it, the next one that we're going to look at here is the encounter with two demoniacs, at least in Matthew there are two. In Mark and Luke, there's only one. It's not a contradiction. They're complementary. In other words, the two demoniacs in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke don't say, no, there weren't two, there was just one. They emphasize one, and the one that they emphasize is going to have more details about him. So, and then, Lord willing, Next week, we will not only hold the Lord's uh, table, but then we will look at the one um, when he healed a, a paralytic and said, which is easier to do, heal him or to say your sins are forgiven and give evidence of it? So that's where we're at in the book of Matthew. I'm going to ask God here, pray to him that he will work in our hearts and make it more than just intellectual. It has to start with the mind, but it has to go to the will, has to go to the motives, has to go to the source of our very being, and only God can do that. Lord, we look to you this morning. We desire to honor you this morning. It's your word. It's your book. You gave it. Solely debt, O Gloria, to you alone belongs the glory. So work in the heart and life of each person present as you see fit. Step on my toes as well. Help me to be conformed in a greater measure to the image of your own dear Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters has an insightful hypothetical correspondence between a senior devil screw tape and his incompetent lesser um, wormwood um, all those letters from from screw tape and and to wormwood it's saying okay here here's how you deceive um, no don't do that um, well one of them has said, he, he's starting to, and they have what they call a patient. You're assigned to him, and here's, here's how you get him off track. Oh, he's starting to think about something spiritual. No, emphasize to him that the real reality is uh, going to work each day and driving your car and forget about all that kind of uh, stuff. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils and demons. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and have an unhealthy interest in them. There's a demon under every rock, 
Every sickness is by a demon and uh, uh, go to uh, that extreme. Both are errors. Um, there's a recent book and film. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, it's, I, I call it uh, Screw Tape Letters on Steroids. It's uh, nefarious. I would not recommend you take young children uh, to go and uh, see it. But it was filmed, actually, in a, one of the prisons up here in Oklahoma. The first I know that they ever allowed anybody in to uh, uh, film something there. And it's a man who is demon-possessed, and he's interacting with, uh, with an atheist uh, psychiatrist, and they do on a number. But the themes that are brought out, I think, are accurate. Look at the reviews. If you would read the reviews by the Hollywood elitist critics, they would say, ah, that stuff's nothing but right-wing propag preachy propaganda. J.I. Packer, over 1980, he's now present with the Lord, so this is over 40 years ago, he wrote, for over a century now, belief in the devil has seemed to be on the way out. The toothy red imp with the tail and the trident has become a secular figure of fun. While Protestant theologians have banished the personal devil of the Bible to the lumber room reserved for broken down myths. No doubt this state of affairs is just what the devil has been working for since allows him to operate on the grandest scale without being detected or opposed. He's also an angel of light. You can count on this, that Satan hates God. He's locked into hatred of God. The demons, there are different ranks. They hate God, and they hate his creation, and they will do anything to disfigure creation so it doesn't glorify God. Satan does masquerade as an angel of light, but it's still the same lying, deception, hatred. A worldview that says seeing with my visible eyes is the only reality I can trust and know is seriously wrong. For a person who takes the Bible seriously, we know of a spiritual realm that is not yet seen with the visible eye. And as a matter of fact, in the text before us, we will have the veil lifted to some extent and we will see things that are revealed to us that you cannot see with the visible eye. There is a spiritual realm in which there is a serious war going on between light and darkness. The only safe path to understand this is to stick close to the Scriptures. Bring the book... And so to the book we go. Now in the first century there was demon possession on a grand scale. And I take it one of the reasons for that, you can see it in the uh, years, that what's called the 400 silent years, and you'll see a lot more demon activity because one of the, one of the evidences when Jesus came, what did he do? Um, John was in prison. And he sent his disciples and say, have I made a mistake? This is the Messiah, but did I, did I really get the right kind of Messiah? And he says, go back and tell John this. 
It's exactly what the scriptures say. The blind see, the deaf hear, the sick are healed, and also one of those is that de the demons are cast out. Now, I take it this, uh, the number of demons does not increase, nor does it decrease. Um, angels were created separate. They do not procreate. There are no little cherubs being produced by angels up there in heaven. That's a common misconception. But if you look at different texts, you go, could go to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and we find out that there was a fall. God created them good. Satan decided, perhaps leading the angels in worship of God, and hey, I'd like some of that stuff. We know from Timothy that pride, pride, and he was cast down and cast out, and he took one-third of the angels with him. So when we come to this text, this is a reality. It's not myth. It's not something, and all three, this is so important, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three synoptics, record this event. Um, we're going to be by uh, the Sea of Galilee again, and if this is not a topical arrangement, then I, I take it, here's what happens. They're out there at night being blown around, uh, Jesus calms it, but the boat's still swamped with water. If you've ever been in a canoe, some of us have on the Buffalo River. <laughs> and you remember, we had to beach the canoes and turn them over and dump the water out. So uh, perhaps they were blown off course, and they come and arrive over, where's my, here it is, over, uh, all right. There it is, right there. I have to get down close to see it. I, ha I have a pair of uh, computer glasses, but if I wear my computer glasses, I can't see them. And I often make a mistake. I get out in the car and I start to drive down the road and everything's a fog and I go, go back and get your regular glasses with bifocals. So anyway, that's a side note. There, there is what is called cursey. Um, at uh, that time, that's a later uh, Greek term, uh, Byzantine, but if people talk about where it took place, they'll often talk about Kersey. There's a wadi, a, a ravine that comes down there off of uh, Carmel. If you look at the text between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are some textual variants there between uh, the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, Gergesenes, etc., one of the problems may be that it's the area of the Gadarenes, but one of the towns is uh, Gerasa. Regardless, they're going to land. This is Gentile territory for sure. So here it is. Here, here's the Sea of Galilee. Come on, Arrow. Um, anyway, you can see this, the, the sea down there. And that's the Golan Heights. So right over on this side of the Jordan River is going to be the Decapolis. Um, that's uh, 
Deca 10, Palace City, those are 10 Roman cities, and only one of them we, we went to actually once, Cathopolis, if you remember that, Beit Sheon was up at the top. And so these are Gentile uh, cities. So I take it that, that uh, this is what is taking place, why there are pig farmers there. Um, so we're going to take a look here at an intense evil supernatural spectacle. Now before we do that, one of the things to understand just how evil it is, is to think about God's creation. So in Genesis 1, what did God say? Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. In other words, one of the purposes for man, he's to be a co-region here ruling God has designed him and the woman who is a complement to him to rule. I come down to the end of Genesis chapter 1, and what do I read? At the end of the seventh day, what did God say? Everything is not only good, tov, it is me'od tov, it is exceedingly good. So I take it from there, there is no fall yet. Um, Job passage, chapter 38, I take it the angels were created, the, uh, they watched the creation take place, etc. And then Genesis chapter 2, I mean Genesis chapter 2 emphasizes on man, brings us in particulars. We had the big picture in chapter 1, now in chapter 2, here's what took place, here's how woman was created from Adam, and we come down to the end of chapter 2, and how does it end? The man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, still honor them, leave them. He has a different set of priorities, and so does she, and they're to cleave to one another like glue and become one. So man was created to bring glory to God. The beginning of the Westminster Catechism is actually quite correct. We're created for what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so I take a big between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, that's when the fall took place. Because if everything was good prior to that point, and now we have Satan, and he comes in, uh, I take it uh, probably uh, speaking through a serpent, and he challenges, uh, goes to Eve first. But if you look carefully at the text in Genesis chapter 3, Adam was standing right there. He, he was present. And so he attacked Eve and... Uh, has God really said? Is God that good? Would he really tell you that you can't eat of a particular fr fruit of, the, of, the, of one tree? And actually, we go back to the text in Genesis chapter 2, and it says, no, God has given them everything in there, but just don't eat of this one tree. Trust me. It was a probation. It was a test. And Satan says, you know, I hate God. 
and I hate his imago dei, the people in the image of God, and he's out to deceive them. So he distorts actually what God has said. Then he gives a reason why she shouldn't believe God, and hey, he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want any rivals. And then Satan's gone. So what she do is she comes out, she takes a look. The tree looks good for fruit. It's going to make her wise. She takes it and she gives to Adam who does not protect her. And they both eat and then we see the calamity. Remember they were naked and not ashamed. Now what's happened? They were naked and ashamed. And so they go out and try and sew fig leaves together. Why do we wear clothes? It's right, it's right there in, in uh, the beginning of the creation account. And then we come to Genesis chapter 6. Turn there briefly. What a distortion of the original creation. And I take it I know this is a uh, passage that's widely disputed on the details, but Genesis chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to him, then the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, that is also a term that's used for angels, saw the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose, and then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide or remain in man forever. He's flesh. His days are going to be 120 years. And then there were Nephilim on the earth in those days. And they came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And then you have a result. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. A man who and a woman who are supposed to think God's thoughts after him, who are intended to bring God glory by showing that God is great, and we descend to this. Now you say, why do you think there's demonic activity involved here? Well, turn over to Jude chapter 6. Not Jude chapter... You go, how many chapters does Jude have? One. So how about verse 6? Turn over. And Second Peter does the same thing, but I think Jude is a little more explicit here. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So now he's going to talk about the certainty of unrepentant false teachers. And he's going to give an example that the angels who fell, whom now are called unclean spirits or demons, and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now this indicates two things. Number one, there are demons who still rove around upon the earth, but some were assigned to the abyss as a result of that, and they're still there. But here's the point. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah 
the surrounding cities, which likewise, which also indulged in sexual immorality. In other words, I'm taking that's comparing back to the angels that they also did that. So when I run that back to Genesis chapter 6, I say that the demons had to use human bodies to do that and to dishonor God, to also defile his creation. Uh, so all of that as a background, how far down can a human being go? Now, Satan is an angel of light. He's going to deceive and distort and hate God and appear. I, I've seen men. I've listened to some of them. Um, they're brilliant. They dress well. They have nice suits. Their hair is cut. And I listen to what they have to say. And I'm telling you, it's 1 Timothy 4.1. There are doctrines of demons. There are doctrines of demons. When you deny the essential truths of the gospel, that most certainly is not from God. All right, let's go to the text then in Matthew chapter uh, 8 and verse 28. But I want to overview it where we're going to wind up here. We're going to come down to this terrible scene of two men at Kersey. Again, Mark and Luke are just going to emphasize one of these two uh, men. But the text does something here, and you're going to find it in verse 29, you're going to find it in verse 32, and you're going to find it in verse 34. At least, it's not always translated, but at least the ESV does, and it's the word behold, it do. It's actually an imperatival form of adon, of, of to, uh, to see. And what it means is this, when it says behold, hey, stop. Pay attention to this. And sometimes that it do, that stop, pay attention, look, will be used of simply an entire story, such as the parable of uh, the, the soils, and it says, it, it do. Look, look, stop, look at this. But here, it's going to be three times in just this one section. So it's going to do, behold, would, would you take a look at this? And then, if you think that's something, now go down to verse 32. Behold, there's, there, there's demons and pigs, and watch what's happened. And it's the only, and please come up and correct me if I'm wrong. I have not found one other text in the Bible where demons inhabit animals. At least it's not revealed that they do. And then finally, so, so there's a progression here. Look at this. And then look, at, look what happens to these, this herd. We'll find out that there's almost 2,000 pigs involved here. And then if we miss the final behold, this is where everything heads. Behold, Look at this, look at the terrible response of the people, and yet there's only one right response, and that's the former de-demonized, the man who is now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. It's a wonderful text, but it, is, it, is, uh, it, it should alert us if we follow these beholds to uh, know that this, this, this is a frightening text. Now here's Kersey. Um, right behind the Golan Heights. I, I don't remember, Tom, did we, did we see that? Uh, there's an old church there. I don't think we went up that, that uh, high. Um, 
So let's go to two dangerous demoniacs here in Matthew chapter 28. So when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. So the first thing we find out, they're not only fierce and wild, exceedingly fierce. There's supernatural demonic power involved here in these two men. And they're coming out of the tombs. Now, this, these are rock-hewn uh, spaces, openings. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were only ex concerned about external behavior. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, there's two reasons for that. Sometimes they would, they would put lime over the top and go, be careful, don't, don't go over there. Don't think that's just a little opening cave. There's dead people in there. Um, some thinks it was also to adorn them. I'm more inclined to, to think it, it was a warning. And Jesus said, you know why you guys are like that? Because all you are concerned is about the exterior, but inside are dead men's bones and filth. That's what you're like on the interior. So when they're living in the tombs, just think about that. And isolated. Um, I don't know his family background or these, these two men, their family background. We're going to see later on. They've been in this condition for a long time. Um, what about the family? What do, what do you, it, how painful is that for family to have a son who is a serial murderer and just go out and mow down people. So how, how painful is that for the family that has uh, kind of a lone ranger isolated from society, instead he's intended to glorify God, be with other people, now he's out there, and they're fierce, they're fierce, wild. Um, and, and secondly, then among uh, the tombs, and they are a physical terror to the community. They are so fierce that no one could pass that way. In other words, um, if you go out there in that area and they see you, guess what's going to happen to you? Um, remember the seven sons of uh, Sceva in the book of Acts? Uh, let's turn over there just quickly. I think this highlights that. Turn over to Acts chapter 19, and it is about... I'm, I'm going to start in verse 12. Uh, Acts 19, 12. Paul's doing extraordinary miracles. God was doing the extraordinary miracles, but he's doing it through Paul. And evil spirits were cast out, and some itinerant Jewish exorcists came along, and they began to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, I command you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, and the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But they weren't believers. So watch what happens. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on him, 
mastered all the seven sons, overpowered them, and they're taken off, fleeing that house naked and wounded. That's, that's just one. So, uh, going back again to Matthew, think, think what it is like to go through the area, and what they're doing is uh, anybody that passes through that area, they're, they're going to pounce on you and beat you to a pulp. And so nobody wants, I'm sure the warning in the community, no, don't go out that road. You better bypass around that area or these, these two uh, demoniacs are going to come out there after you. Now, um, before we hit the first behold, um, I want you to go over to, is it Mark or Luke? I think Mark. Yes, go over to Mark chapter 5, verse Three, because it's going to give us a little more details. Just keep your place in Matthew and go to Mark chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse... Uh, I'll just start in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, so these two guys that are demon-possessed come out of the tombs and they'll, hey, look at that. People coming in our territory, getting out of the boat. And they're going down, and what do they want to do? They're going to overpower them, pound on them. Who do you think you are coming through here? And, uh, and now Mark is going to emphasize one of these two men in particular. And it says he had an unclean spirit. Unclean um, is all the opposite of godliness, filth, moral filth, physical filth. And he lived among the tombs. And watch this. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. He'd often been bound with shackles and chains. In other words, numerous times people would come out. They, they would take several people out there and go, you know what, we want to use that road. So they bind the guy and they bring him back in. I think Luke says they held him under guard. And all of a sudden, this, this is like Samson except not empowered by the Spirit of God. This, this is empowered by evil, by supernatural evil strength. So what's he do? Just pop him, and off he goes. And it says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Now, you could hear him out there. You can hear this guy shrieking and howling. We have coyotes that come occasionally. One, one night they were down there in the ravine, and I could hear them not far from our house. Um, people would know when they hear this guy with this blood-curdling scream and howl. That's not animals out there. That's an animal-like person, indwelt, and... Furthermore, what's he doing? He's always crying out and cutting himself with stone. What a, what a terrible picture of humanity that's supposed to glorify God that was originally created good. What has happened with the fall that has taken place? And what has happened that when... Uh, we're not explained how the demon possession first took place. I don't know. It's over in Gentile territory. Was this something with their false religion? Or um, we're just told that it happened to take place. 
And so he lived in isolation among rock-hewn caverns, numerous failed attempts to subdue him. He's uncontrollable, supernatural, demonic empowerment. He's always howling and shrieking, and he's inflicting physical pain, not only on others, but suffering upon himself. Do you remember one one of the striking ones, uh, a son came, uh, a man who had a son, and he came to Jesus, and uh, he said, um, I came to your disciples, and uh, they weren't able to cast them out. And here's what happens. Uh, the, the demon will cause seizures, and he will fall into the water, and he'll fall into the fire. In other words, uh, maybe he'll drown. How many times had he fallen into the fire? How many burns were on him? And uh, your disciples weren't able to do it. And Jesus just cast him out. Just a word. That's all, just one word. So they inflict destruction. They hate God, and they hate His creation, believers and unbelievers. And they want to mar the image of God instead of glorifying God. Look at this case here. And then Luke will add two more details, so flip over to Luke chapter 8. And 27, uh, verses 27 and 28. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now we know it's plural, not just one. Remember Mary Magdalene? And later on, it talks about her. And Jesus had cast out how many demons out of her? Seven. Seven. Uh, But we're going to get a shock here in a bit about how many demons are inside this guy and controlling him. Um, For a long time he had worn no clothes. We, We just go back to the fall again. They were naked and not ashamed, and now they're naked and ashamed. And here's this guy out there roaming around uh, naked. And, you know, it does get cold in Israel. Um, the infliction upon the man himself. And he had not lived in a house for a long time, but among the tombs. That indicates to me he probably did come from uh, a home, maybe he had a wife, children, I don't know. Um, and uh, when, he, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, he shrieked, and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice. Now, when it says he fell down before him, he was prostrate, This is not in worship. Sometimes that uh, falling down is in worship. Here it's in terror. It's fear. We go to James. Do the demons know who Jesus is? Yes, they do. And what's the result? They shudder. They shudder in fear. So now jump back to Matthew one more time. And let's look at... Uh, so, plurality of demons, uh, un- naked, unkempt, unclean spirit, and now we come down to uh, a trio of beholds that I pointed out. So, here's the scenario. It's set up. Here are these two men, one in particular emphasized. What a mess. What a mess. Uh, 
And then Matthew begins with the behold. The first behold is going to be this demons encounter Jesus. Now, nobody's able to control them anymore, no human being, but watch what happens when they encounter Jesus. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Now, I take you, here, you have to take this in its full deity and messianic significance. Now, I take it when they see them down at the shore, they go rushing down there, they're going to, this is a Chicago slang, they're going to womp up on them, um, you know, beat them up, what, whatever. And they get down there, Satan and demons are not omnipresent. They can only be in one place at one time, and they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. Now they've been around a few thousand years. They've listened just like uh, in the temptation accounts. Satan knew a lot of scripture. He tried to misquote it. Um, I take it certainly demons were watching that whole uh, spectacle, hoping that their master would win, and he did not. It says, well, when he wasn't able to defeat Jesus, he left for a more opportune time. I mean, the cross is coming. How can I deter him from, from that? But they know who Jesus is, and they not only know, they know about what's going to happen to him. You go back to Genesis 3, 16, 17, 18, um, Isaiah 53, how that becomes unfolding. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, this expression literally in Greek is something, is something like this. What to us and to you? And I take it uh, looking at how that's used in the Old Testament as well. It's a defensive statement on their behalf. Hey, you, you shouldn't be out here doing this to us now. I mean, we, we know we're going to be tormented um, eventually, but what are you doing here with us now? And the demons were begging him over and over. They see this herd of pigs feeding at some distance from them, and they say, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now, some of you read some commentaries and they go, well, Jesus didn't know what was going to happen to the pigs or he would never have allowed that. I go, that, this is the same kind of liberal soup that is dished up when you go back to uh, the fall in the garden and Jesus is asking him, where are you? Because he didn't know where they were. I mean, that's total nonsense. I mean, it's just Jesus is drawing out from them repentance. Where are you? Where are you? Did you eat that fruit I told you not to eat of? Um, so here, they make a request, and, and Martin Luther is right. The devil is always God's devil. He can only do what God permits him to do, and he does not know that it's going to be a boomerang and come back on his own head. And so they say, let us go into this into this herd of pigs. And Mark will tell us, you know how many there were? About 2,000. 2,000. If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, one word. Now this is a plural imperative, not singular. He's commanding them, go. 
Um, if, if you're in Kentucky or somewhere, you might go, y'all go. Um, it means every single one of you, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. Now, if you think that's something, this encounter with these two demons, behold, and what they cry out and how they fear, behold, verse 32, wow, the whole herd, these demon-possessed crazy pigs that is affecting uh, their instinct, what do they do? They rush down the steep bank into the sea and drown in the waters. Yeah, I, I could say, take a look at that. Can you imagine that? 2,000 pigs, you look down at the shore, and maybe some of them are bloated, they're still, they're still floating around, and uh, all, all of, And so what are the herdsmen, the pig farmers doing? They're going, these Gentile pig farmers, they're going, what just happened? What? And so what do they do? They flee. They flee. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything. And the other accounts will make not only in the city, but around in the countrymen. I don't know how many pig farmers were there. It doesn't tell us, but they're rushing back into the city and going, uh, where's your pigs? Um, they're gone. They're down there in the Sea of Galilee. All of them? Yeah, you're not going to believe what happened. Um, there was a demon-possessed guy near there, and uh, we if, if they heard what the demon asked, and um, all of a sudden the demons are, are cast out, and Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs, and all of a sudden our pigs took off in a mad rush, and they rushed down in the sea and were drowned. And people are going, nah, you're making this up. We want to see it for ourselves. You go, well, come along and check it out then. And so they come back and uh, the third behold, if you think that's something, check this out. What is the response of the people? Now, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, let's go to the fuller account over in Mark chapter 5. Back up to verse 9. Jesus asked them, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. Do you know what a Roman legion is? It's generally 6,000 soldiers, plus each one, at least at the time of Augustus, would be backed up by 6,000 auxiliary, you know, to just be, you need support there on the ground for them. And it says, because we are many. So you have one who's a spokesman. Also, if I work through this, sometimes you have the man, it appears he's speaking, and sometimes the demons are speaking. And my name is Legion. Then verse 13, they rushed down, numbering about 2,000. And so here we are, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Are these, are, are these guys they out there drinking wine? Uh, did they imagine this? They seem pretty uh, sure this happened. So we come back. 
And they came to Jesus. Now watch what is highlighted. They saw the demon-possessed man. Here's this fierce guy. We couldn't even control him. Oh, we did it a few times, but finally it just came to the point. We had him chained. We had him under restraints. And, just, whoa, and off he went again. And we couldn't even go out through that area. And there he was. It was the same guy. We could still see some of the wounds and the lacerations on him where he'd cut himself with, with rocks. And what's he doing? He's not running around wild. He, he's sitting there. He's clothed. He's not naked. I don't know who gave him clothes. And he's, so for now, he's, he's, he's sane and he's in his sound mind. And what's their response? Wow, this is a good thing. This guy and his actions, and what do they do? They're afraid. They're very fearful. And how did this take place? So, and those who had seen it, now we have eyewitnesses, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And here's their response. Jesus, get out of this region. We want him away. Now, we're not told exactly why. There's a lot of unanswered questions here that the text doesn't answer our curiosity. Um, But in the midst of this description, one remarks, the terror is the demons, the comfort is ours. These demons show submission to the sovereign they so intensely despise, yet they confess his supremacy. This leaves us in no doubt about how the cosmic conflict will play out. The terror of demons is the certain hope of the church. Darrell Bach remarks, how can animals be possessed? Why would Jesus allow such a use of animals? What happened to the demons? Some think they were assigned to the abyss when, when, the, when the pigs perished. Did the spirits feel compelled to dwell somewhere rather than roaming the earth? One remarks, the final chapter, the local chapter for the ethical treatment of animals might be upset, but the Bible is silent about these swine who committed suicide. In other words, the point here is not to satisfy all our curiosity. The point is, you don't, you don't think there were a lot of demons inside there? You see what happened to the pigs? There's your verbal, I mean, there's your visual evidence of what happened in the supernatural realm. Plus, check this guy out. I mean, this is the wild guy. And look at him, sitting, clothed, in his right mind, and their response is, get Jesus out of here. Now, if I were to conjecture, and I could be wrong, um, what do Romans have? They got a God for everything. And so maybe they're thinking, wow, we got to get him out of here. He may overpower our gods. I don't know, but the, the point is, they clearly reject him. But, Look at the other response. Verse 18 of Mark 5. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons 
was begging him that he might be with him. Now, some say, go away, and this guy says, let me be with you. But Jesus says, no, he didn't permit him. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Be careful about telling Jesus to go away. He did. But he didn't leave himself without a witness. Here's this wild-eyed former guy clothed in his right mind, and look what he does. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Um, now here's, here's the Decapolis, uh, Mediterranean. I know you can't see my finger. Where's my arrow? Um, I'm going to have to make that arrow bigger. The big blue is the Mediterranean Sea. Up there is the Sea of Galilee. Those different colors are uh, the Decapolis, a uh, group of ten cities, Abila, Damascus, Dion, Garissa, Gadara, Hippos, Pella, Philadelphia, Rafana, Scythopolis, where we were at, at Beit Sheon, and they're kind of a Hellenistic uh, uh, Greco-Roman confederation. So here you have this flaming evangelist. Guess what happened to me? I was the wild guy out there <laughs> that beat up some of you people. And Jesus came along. There's an old hymn. It was, uh, some of you have read some of the stuff by Oswald J. Uh, or, um, not, um, Oswald J. Smith, the Canadian pastor, has a wonderful book on leadership. He's now present in heaven. And Homer Rodeheaver uh, put music to it. Tom, I think I've heard you sing it before. It goes like this. One sat alone beside the highway begging. His eyes were blind, the light he could not see. He clutched his rags and shivered in the shadows. Then Jesus came and bade the darkness flee. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Now that's probably referring to blind Bartimaeus, but the second stanza is particular about this event. From home and friends the evil spirits drove him. Among the tombs he dwelt in misery. He cut himself as demon powers possessed him. Then Jesus came and set the captive free. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory, for all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Now let's go down to the resurrection. Their hearts were sad as in the tomb they laid him, for death had come and taken him away. Their night was dark, and bitter tears were falling. Then Jesus came, and night was turned to day. So men today have found the Savior able. They could not conquer passion, lust, and sin. Their broken hearts had left him, sad and lonely. Then Jesus came and dwelt himself within. 
So I ask you this morning, you read this account and you do, ah, bah, humbug, that can't possibly be true. This is nothing but liberal hogwash. No, this is, this is reality. If you have never repented of your sin, you, you need to take this account seriously. This isn't reforming uh, uh, an alcoholic or a drug abuser by putting him in a different environment. This starts from within. This is internal change that results in external change. And so if you, just a couple of closing um, applied theology, have you repented of your sin and placed your trust into Jesus Christ? Is the blindness gone? We're born spiritually blind. Are you loving God and guarding your heart against the tempter? It's talked about he has schemes. He has schemes. He has mental mind schemes against us. And if you don't take up the shield of faith, you're sunk to extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked. And how do you do that? You've got to be in the book. You've got to be a people of the book. You've got to read it. And sometimes I read it in the morning, and you could ask me that night, what did you read this morning? I go, hmm, I'm going to have to go back and see again because my memory isn't that good. But you stay in the book. You stay in the book. You keep saturating yourself with Scripture. You, you, you seek to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. Are you salt and light so that others may see your good works and glorify the true God in heaven? Are you proclaiming with words the good news of the gospel? The gospel is a message. We don't proclaim the gospel by the way we live. We show that the gospel is true by the way we live, but you have to speak the gospel. And I thought I had a fourth point. Obviously, I don't. Paul, come lead us in. Be thou my vision. <laughs>